So, Dale, I don't know how much you know about therapy, but it usually starts by you telling me a little something about yourself. I thought there'd be couches and Kleenex and shit. Look at me, son. It's not your fault. Do you want to talk about some of those feelings? I love you. Obviously, you don't know me. So how's this supposed to work? You sit, I sit, we talk. Hi, I'm Dr. Sam. And I'm Dr. Fran. Welcome to Freudian Scripts. The podcast where we put your favorite TV shows and movies on the hypothetical couch and take a deeper dive into the way psychology is portrayed. We analyze the way therapy looks in entertainment, discuss the way psychological diagnoses are portrayed, and break down other psychological themes seen on our screens. As a reminder, Freudian Scripts is for informational and entertainment purposes only. Please consult your mental health professional with any questions and seek care if needed. The content and clips in today's episode will contain explicit language and mature and adult themes. It's officially fall, which I'm super excited about. I love everything pumpkin and apple. (laughs) Um, So we're going to be starting off October with the first of our Spooky Sessions series. And if you've listened to our podcast before, you know as well as I do that Dr. Fran is easily frightened and hates scary movies. But she does like psychological thrillers. Very scared. So we'll see how she fares with some of our featured shows and movies this month. And to kick off the series, we're covering a classic psychological horror film. You spook easily, Starling? Not yet, sir. A killer is on the loose. A rookie FBI agent is on his trail. He'll never stop. But in order to track him down, she'll have to match wits. I'll help you catch him, Clary. With the darkest of all minds. Oh, he's a monster. Pure psychopath. So rare to capture one alive. You told me you don't spook easily. You call this easy, sir? Lester's missing hand arm. Man's a raving maniac. Who knows what he'll do? So, as you can hear, we are going to be covering Silence of the Lambs this session. So, Dr. Fran, I'm curious, did you find Silence of the Lambs to be a scary movie? Were you scared? I've seen the movie before, so I kind of knew what to expect. Um, But generally, psychological thrillers I don't find as scary. I can, like, go to sleep fine at night, but if you put any kind of paranormal, ghosts, like, (laughs) anything like that on, I just, I won't be able to sleep. I'll just have nightmares about it for days. (laughs) <laughs> and so this is where Dr. Fran and I um, differ a little bit. We have so we have a lot of similar interests, but I love any kind of creepy, scary thing. Um, and Dr. Fran mostly likes to stick to the psychological stuff. But luckily, I do think Silence of the Lambs falls within that category. <laughs> yeah, not too scared. It was okay. I did watch it, to be fair, like in the middle of the day. It was like bright and sunny outside. I like didn't go to bed alone that night. So that probably helps. <laughs> Whenever I watch these kind of things, I'm usually not too afraid unless I have to walk my dog alone at night then I start to think about the like images in the movie but otherwise I'm fine that's fair (laughs) so why don't you tell us a little bit about what Silence of the Lambs is Yes. So um, as Dr. Fran mentioned, I had also seen Silence of the Lambs, but had been a long time. Silence of the Lambs premiered in 1991. And when it premiered, it won Academy Awards in all of the top five categories. So Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Actress, and Best Adapted um, Screenplay. So pretty wild. And even in 1998, it made the list of 100 Greatest Films from the Past 100 Years um, by the American Film Institute. So a lot of accolades here. And in the movie, it really 
really focuses on a young FBI cadet, Clarice Starling, who is played by Jodie Foster. And while she is still a trainee in the Academy, Clarice is asked to interview Dr. Hannibal Lecter, as played by Anthony Hopkins. Hannibal was previously a psychiatrist and is now imprisoned for being a serial killer who cannibalized his victims. Clarice works with Hannibal in order to solve another serial murder case, a serial killer called Buffalo Bill, who has thus far killed five victims. Thanks for that summary. And we really wanted to launch our spooky session series um, with Sons of the Lambs because Hannibal Lecter is one of the most notorious film villains and References to this movie are still being made in popular culture. You know, obviously this was based originally on a book, but then has been made into multiple movies and TV shows. So there's just a lot of different iterations of this story. Yes. Um, and this is going to be our first venture, really, into discussing a movie with criminal aspects, a little bit different from um, the TV show You that we covered, but really talking more about um, forensic psychology and psychopathy. So we're super excited. We'll have a guest joining us later to talk about that. Silence of the Lambs portrays not one, but two serial killers. And we are not a true crime podcast, but we do want to spend some time talking about serial killers and as it pertains specifically to the characters in Silence of the Lambs. So I think the best place to start off, especially as this is our first time really getting into this, what is a serial killer, Dr. Fran? So the actual definition of a serial killer can vary, um, but generally is thought to be occurring when someone has killed three or more people, um, typically that are unknown to them. So it's not like a crime of passion, typically. It's kind of the idea that it's strangers or people you don't know, um, and that there's typically a period in between each murder. So that's differentiating between serial killing and like a spree murder, which would be very quick amount of time, or sorry, a very short amount of time, and murders occurring in quick succession versus serial killers. There's usually a period in between each one. And so serial killing is actually very rare. And so even though we see it all the time on TV shows and movies and things like that, it is quite uncommon, um, even though it doesn't seem like that the way it's portrayed in the media. Um, but we won't like go into all of the details about like what creates a serial killer. Honestly, there's still a lot of debate on that. Um, again, because it's so rare, we don't just have like databases full of all the different serial killers and why they do the things they do and things like that. There are a variety of factors that we consider and study when it comes to looking at serial killers. So, you know, there are differences in the histories and backgrounds of people who have been identified as serial killers, as well as differences even in the motivations for their crimes. So this is really a topic that we could spend a lot of time on and really delve into. And there are a lot of actually like great podcasts out there that kind of review um, these different historical killings and killers and their victims. Um, so our goal really today is to focus more on Hannibal Lecter and his character and the kind of serial killer that he is portrayed to being. Um, and for that, we're going to just review a little bit of the history related to um, what makes a serial killer and studying serial killers. Yeah, and I thought this was really interesting to kind of go back and learn a little bit more about how even the term serial murderer came about. So Definitely. it was coined around the 1960s, but then wasn't really used in public until this big press conference in 1983. They announced they'd been conducting research at the FBI on serial murderers, that there were dozens in the U.S., like they could be anywhere, all these things, and it sparked, sparked this mass panic. I mean, can you imagine like living at that time where this is what they're talking about on the news? Yeah, that they're just all of these um, uh, serial murderers on the loose. They could be anyone. They could be anywhere. It sounds very scary. <laughs> yeah. So that's really when it got popularized. And kind of simultaneously, then people started learning more about, like, the Behavioral Sciences Unit or what we, like, hear about now of, like, Behavioral Analysis Unit, like, on Criminal Minds. And then people started getting really interested in profiling and this idea of trying to understand the mind 
of a serial killer and trying to use that to track them down. And what's interesting about that, if I'm uh, remembering correctly, is that a big piece in the kind of construct behind the serial murderer was really that they are just by nature difficult to understand and difficult to profile in a lot of ways because they do lack um, what people might think of as a very clear motive, right? This was the first time we were studying murderers that were killing people that they didn't know, were not related to crimes of passion. So really understanding those motivations um, around this time really took an interest in the public. And um, as Dr. Fran mentioned for criminal profilers to kind of figure out who were these people why was this happening um I'll put a brief plug in for Netflix's show Mindhunters. It's um, something that Dr. Fran and I may cover in the future, but they kind of, uh, of course, put their spin on the history of how the term serial murderers came about and even studying um, the beginnings of criminal profiling. It's loosely based on the career of John Edward Douglas, who is a retired special agent with the FBI, and he is credited with being the first criminal, one of the first criminal profilers and has written many books on criminal psychology. Um, so very interesting interesting in that regard. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you also did some interesting research, or you already know some of this because you are a big true crime fan, that actually Hannibal and Buffalo Bill are loosely based off of real serial killers. Is that right? That's correct. And, you know, a lot of the famous psychological thrillers or horrors that we see sometimes can be loosely based on actual historical figures and serial murderers. So for um, Silence of the Lambs, it does seem like the character of Buffalo Bill and maybe even some aspects of um, Hannibal Lecter were thought to be modeled after the crimes of Ed Gein. Um, So I'm not sure if people are familiar with Ed Gein. We're not going to go into the whole history of his, but actually one of my favorite podcasts, Last Podcast on the Left, is a really great three-part series on Ed Gein and his kind of history, his crimes, and his capture. So if you're interested in learning more, I would definitely check them out. Um, But he uh, gained notoriety in about like 1957 in Wisconsin. Um, He was discovered to have committed, they believe, two murders. Um, He had killed two females, Mary Hogan and Bernice Warden in Plainfield, Wisconsin. And when they went to his home and his barn or farm where he lived, they actually found um, a lot of bones and skin, and he had made furniture and various items of clothing and different things around the house out of bones and skin of bodies that he had exhumed from graveyards. Um, So it's thought that those kind of aspects that we see in Silence of the Lambs with Buffalo Bill are loosely based off of this character. And then similarly, Jeffrey Dahmer, who is another um, notorious American serial killer. Again, last podcast on the left is a fantastic kind of review of his whole um, upbringing, crime, and capture, if you're interested in learning more about him. But he is known um, for having murdered and dismembered at least 17 males from the time of 1978 to 1991. And his murders were known to involve necrophilia and cannibalism. So some of those aspects with Hannibal maybe being related to uh, Jeffrey Dahmer's crimes. Yeah, super interesting. And I'm glad you shared some of the resources for last podcast on the left. We'll put links to those on our website. Um, so anytime we reference things, you can go to our website to click on links to really easily access the different things that we talk about. And we know this is a topic that people are super interested in, which is why there's like multiple podcasts and, you know, TV shows and resources out there on these things. So we wanted to just spend a few minutes on like, why are we interested in these things? Like, what is it about human psychology that draws us? to thinking and talking about serial killers and true crime. 
It's such a good question. And when we were thinking about this, I did have to kind of look inward because I am one of those people that is interested in true crime and kind of learning about these tales. And, um, you know, of course, I think it's also very important to think about the impact uh, on the victims and not really like glorify the people that have committed these crimes. Um, But I think there's a reason why sometimes people will say that true crime or these kind of stories are their guilty pleasures. We do kind of know that this is an um, a macabre thing to be interested in. There is some guilt associated with it. Um, I definitely can relate with kind of calling it a guilty pleasure, mm-hmm. but one of the main drivers that we know of, and I think kind of relates to my interest as well, is kind of to understand this this thing that just seems so unrelatable, unthinkable, right? There's like this mm-hmm. disconnect with like how we, what we know about society, how we try to act and be, and then not being able to comprehend the actions um, or the drives of others that have committed serial murder to do these horrible things to other people, especially strangers. So that kind of disconnect and trying to better understand it. I think another big piece, and I can't relate to this as much, but this idea of the same reason people like to watch horror movies or go on roller coasters or, <laughs> you know, do those things. There's like something about the adrenaline rush that you get from having this fear um, reaction you know, activated that people enjoy and kind of keep going back to. I don't like roller coasters. I don't like horror movies. So I cannot relate to this at all. I'm not a risk taker. I'm very risk averse. So, but apparently this drives some people to want to watch, you know, serial killer movies and things like that. True. I am also risk averse, but in the opposite, I do still find that kind of adrenaline piece and the horror piece to be fun. I think relatedly, people are really into learning about serial killers because there is this um, idea of we're trying to prepare for the worst or be able to preserve our own safety. So if you learn as much as you can about it, it'll help in some way keep you safe or help you to be prepared if something horrible like this would ever happen to you. Mm -hmm. That one I can relate to. And actually, interestingly, (laughs) women are more drawn to true crime than men, which it kind of would have, you know, fit with if women are, you know, disproportionately more impacted by things like this, they might be more likely to want to watch films and TV shows to kind of mentally prepare of like, what would I do if this happened to me? Which again, very unlikely, very rare situation, but somehow helps you just feel better about it. Um, And another factor that can play into this idea of liking and being drawn to these shows is trying to just have this um, idea of preserving our belief in justice, knowing that evil doesn't always win in the end, which is a little ironic, actually, in the case of Sons of the Lambs, because, spoiler alert, Hannibal Lecter escapes at the end, (laughs) um, but still just the general idea that most of these shows, Criminal Minds, like those TV shows and movies typically end with the serial killer being apprehended and, you know, good winning out in the end. Definitely. And I think overall, even with the actual serial murderers that we know about, um, there are very, there's a very small subsection of those that have been unsolved, right? So most of these crimes, the, the killer has been caught and brought to justice. So even in that piece, kind of learning about the true crime aspect or watching these fictional characters who are also murderers, kind of having them brought to justice and kind of feeling like hope and good wins out, everything's okay, right? I think whenever you watch something scary, you have to get to the end so that you just know like, oh, okay, but it's okay in the end. <laughs> I don't know, though. I feel like that's becoming more common that you actually don't have it be okay in the end because we've seen that same kind of storyline so many times that people are trying to make it different and unique. And so we're seeing more of those films where it doesn't always end up okay, or like there's not always justice at the end, which like for a narrative effect is very different and exciting and unusual. But I don't know, we'll see if that continues to be something that people are drawn to these movies for. Definitely. So as Dr. Sam mentioned, we are going to spend most of today talking about Hannibal, but we did want to just briefly touch on Buffalo Bill. Um, So despite being a very popular and critically acclaimed film, 
Sons of the Lambs has received a lot of criticism for the portrayal of Buffalo Bill um, as this very deranged and dangerous transsexual. And you guys can't see over the podcast, but I'm using quotation marks around this word transsexual that they use um, as they refer to him in the movie. Um, unfortunately, the character really perpetuates a lot of stereotypes, misinformation, misrepresentation, and is incredibly damaging for the transgender and larger LGBTQ plus community. Um, and I actually thought we, it would be nice to play a clip from the Disclosure documentary. If you haven't seen it, it's on Netflix. Highly recommend it. Um, but it really demonstrates how big of an issue this portrayal in particular is. For decades, Hollywood has taught audiences how to react to trans people. Okay, I loved Silence of the Lambs. I'm sorry. It's a great film. It's a great book. I know it's problematic. And Jodie Foster says, There's no correlation in the literature between transsexualism and violence. Transsexuals are very passive. It's like, okay, so you get that this is not a transsexual, a trans person. You get that. We're not passive. Like, why can't you just say... We're not psychopathic murderers. We're not serial killers. We don't do that shit. Jody. I was about to go through transition, and I worked up the courage to tell one of my colleagues. She looked at me and she goes, you mean like Buffalo Bill? Like her only point of reference was this disgusting, psychotic serial killer who hunts women in order to kill them and skin them in order to wear their bodies, to literally appropriate the female form, which is exactly like the feminist like argument against the existence of trans women is that we're trying to appropriate the female form. And here he was doing it literally, physically. You know, she regrets it now. She looks back and she's horrified that she said that because she knows trans people now and she knows the issues and she knows me. But the fact that that was her only reference point, that that was her only template for understanding was a sick, psychotic serial killer. It hurts. It just hurts. So as you can hear, portrayals like these can be incredibly harmful. Um, and for that reason, we really want to focus today more on Hannibal's character rather than Buffalo Bill's because we really don't want to perpetuate the narrative over again. Definitely not. And as you've heard Dr. Fran and I talk about several times, we think that representation in the media and on our screens is so important. Um, so we're really grateful and glad to see documentaries like Disclosure, as well as other movies and TV shows, some of which we've already covered, where we're seeing more positive and more accurate portrayals of individuals from the LGBTQ plus community. So to go ahead and shift gears, and actually to help us dive into the character and psychology of Hannibal Lecter, we have a very special guest joining us today, Dr. Adam Coffey. Dr. Adam has a PhD in clinical psychology, and his specialization is forensic psychology. He's currently a staff psychologist at Patton State Hospital in California, which is the largest forensic hospital in the U.S., as a staff psychologist, Dr. Adam works primarily with patients who have been found not guilty by reason of insanity, with the primary goal of helping patients reintegrate into the community safely and effectively following their time in the hospital. Prior to this position, he completed a postdoctoral fellowship in clinical forensic psychology in which he gained extensive experience in forensic assessment, treatment, and research. His areas of expertise are criminal forensic assessment, particularly violence risk assessments, assessment and treatment of personality disorders, and the treatment of severe mental illness. Wow, so impressive and exciting. We are very thrilled to have Dr. Adam join us today, and he's also a fan of the show, so even more exciting. Thanks so much for being on today, Dr. Adam. Of course, I'm really happy to be here. Long-time listener, first-time caller, as they say. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Um, so 
you know, Dr. Fran and I have had the privilege of getting to know you better. So I think our listeners would like to get a little more background and information about you as well. So before we jump into Dr. Hannibal Lecter and other scary things, let's learn a little bit more about some of your favorite TV shows and movies. Yeah, so I'm definitely a big fan of Christopher Nolan movies. Um, watched a lot of those during the pandemic. Uh, my favorite uh, is Inception, which, you know, <laughs> as I was thinking about it, getting ready for this, uh, I think it's probably because I just had to watch it so many times to to know what was actually going on yes. in that movie. <laughs> so it's probably just a familiarity thing uh, at this point. But I was also a really big fan of um, Christopher Nolan's the Joker in The Dark Knight. So kind of another one of those clever, psychopathic type characters who, you know, in some ways, as far as sophistication goes, bears a lot of resemblance to the the Hannibal character that we'll be talking about oh, wow. uh, today. So I'm a, I'm a really big fan of, of, of any writer who can just develop a, a really compelling character that way. So I think that's one of the reasons I liked this movie so much was because I did find the character of Hannibal to be so compelling of a character. Uh, and actually... Before we get started, I have to admit that I'd actually never seen this movie, uh, Silence of the Lambs, before before you guys asked me to be on the podcast. And I, it really just blows a lot of people's minds when I tell them that I've been in forensic psychology for going on eight years now and have never seen Silence of the Lambs. Because, you know, almost without fail, when I tell people what it is that I do, someone will bring up this character and, and kind of have a familiarity with forensic psychology and, and things like that just because they've seen this movie. And so, you know, now I'm, I'm finally happy to be able to tell all the people I talk to about what I do that, you know, I actually do have some familiarity with the movie and uh, can kind of address what's accurate and what's uh, maybe a little dramatized uh, when it comes to what I actually do. Well, that's awesome. We're glad to help you in that regard. And now you'll be able to have an answer for those questions. I think it's better. Um, some of the questions or comments I usually get is, are you analyzing me right now? <laughs> um, no, I am not. I mm -hmm. do not just analyze everyone. Um, so really excited to have you talk more about this. I do have one quick question for you. But as a big Christopher Nolan fan, have you seen Tenet yet? No, I haven't actually had the chance to go see it yet. I've been a little busier than I like to be these <laughs> days, and it's it's definitely on my list, but I haven't had a, a chance to go see it in theaters yet. But I am looking forward to it. Well, I'll be excited to hear. You know, I know with the pandemic, it also makes it difficult to go and see movies, but I actually was able to see Tenet at a drive-in movie, and I'll be curious to hear your take in the future as a big Christopher Nolan fan. Yeah, of course. I'll be happy to share it. So, you know, in a lot of TV shows and movies, we do see various characters profiling, attempting to catch characters engaging in criminal acts, and that's kind of like on this umbrella of forensic psychology. So I, we were hoping you could tell our listeners just a little bit about like, what is forensic psychology and what do forensic psychologists do? Yeah, of course. I, I do think there's a big fascination with my little subfield of psychology in, in Hollywood. You know, you see it a lot on shows like CSI and movies like Silence of the Lambs, um, our, our profession portrayed, uh, so much so that we actually have this name for a concept where our our profession is incorrectly portrayed in shows. We call that the CSI effect, <laughs> uh, huh. which again just kind of refers to this tendency for people to think that they know what it is that forensic psychology is, kind of based on how they see it uh, in movies and TV shows. I think most simply the way that you would define forensic psychology is that it exists right there at the intersection between psychology and the law. 
So really what we do as forensic psychologists is we apply the science and professional practice of psychology to matters that are important to the legal system. So really we, we help out the courts in that way. So I think maybe the easiest way to describe what a forensic psychologist does would be to tell you a little bit about uh, the hospital that I work at, Patton State Hospital, and kind of what my day-to-day duties look like. So at Patton State, there's two different types of patients. You know, on one hand, you have patients who have been sent to the hospital for what we call being incompetent to stand trial, uh, which basically just means that they have some kind of mental illness that is interfering with their ability either to understand the charges that are against them or to be able to work with their attorney in a meaningful way to construct a defense. Uh, So we have this belief in the U.S., it's written into the Bill of Rights, that everyone's entitled to a fair trial. And so for that to happen, you know, we believe that someone has to understand what they're being charged with, uh, understand that if convicted, what might happen to them, uh, and also be able to contribute to their defense in a meaningful way. So, for example, if you get a patient with pretty significant schizophrenia, uh, they might be paranoid, um, meaning that they think people are out to get them or out to harm them in some way. Uh, that would really interfere with their ability to consult with their attorney and to really understand the nature of the legal system because, you know, theoretically, if they're paranoid, they're going to think that the trial is just going to go against them because the whole legal system is against them. Uh, so that's one side of the hospital. And my observation about that is that the patients on on that side of the hospital are usually a, a bit more sick, like acutely sick. So their mental illness is very active. They're experiencing hallucinations and delusions, uh, paranoia on a pretty consistent basis. Uh, on the other side of the hospital, the side of the hospital that I work on, uh, these are patients who have been found not guilty by reason of insanity. Yeah, and maybe you can tell us a little bit about what that is. I feel like we hear that term thrown around a lot, um, especially, you know, I think it's important to note that insanity is not a term that is used in psychology, but it is used in that intersection of psychology and the law, and particularly as a legal term, right? Yeah, that's right. Insanity is a legal finding. So it's one potential outcome for a case. Uh, That's exactly right. It's a, a legal term. And so what it actually means uh, is that the individual has committed some kind of crime. And then as a result of a mental illness that they have, while they were committing that crime, they either couldn't understand what it was that they were doing. uh, We call that the nature and quality of their act. Or more often what the case is, they weren't able to determine or distinguish right from wrong during that time. Uh, So say, for example, uh, Mm -hmm. we'll go back to this example of paranoia. If a person is acutely paranoid uh, and they're believing that everyone is out to get them, uh, and then as a consequence of that, they commit some sort of crime where they think someone is about to aggress on them, and so they in turn uh, assault someone or or do something like that as a a means to protect themselves, Uh, what we say is that they weren't really able to understand that in that moment – Um, what they were doing was morally not the right thing to do. Uh, They believed that they were acting in self-defense and in a very like self-preserving way. And so that's just kind of a a garden variety insanity type of defense. You know, we see a lot of people um, engage in that type of behavior when acutely paranoid, or they have some sort of auditory hallucination. They hear voices that tell them that they're in danger and that they have to, you know, do something that, um, that protects them. 
I think that's so helpful, Dr. Adam. And I think that those clarifications and just kind of those explanations are really helpful to think of. I think as it pertains to Silence of the Lambs and kind of just in general media, what we see in TV and shows or what we hear, sometimes people think if someone is a serial killer that they're automatically insane, right? Mm -hmm. Or maybe mentally ill or something is wrong with them. And um, I think that distinction of do they... Were they able to distinguish between right and wrong? Are they responsible at the time of the crime? Is a really interesting factor that you bring up. Um, and I think especially as it relates to Hannibal. Right, because I think we learn at the beginning that he was found not guilty by reason of insanity. Is that right? Yes, I believe so. And and that would support him being placed in a, uh, a mental health institution like where he is versus a, a prison or, or something like that. Uh, I do think when it comes to the insanity defense, there's this myth that uh, essentially people are just getting away with murder. Uh, and that's not exactly the case. In fact, in, in some respects, it might be a disadvantage to be found not guilty by reason of insanity. Uh, so for example, if a person goes to prison, there's a determined sentence that's associated with that. And so a person knows exactly when they're going to get out uh, and they have an expectation there. Uh, but for people found not guilty by reason of insanity, there's no such guarantee. Um, a person is committed to the hospital, you know, for the length of what a prison sentence would be, but that can actually be extended uh, for much longer periods of time. You know, the criteria to get out of the hospital is reduced dangerousness. So we want these patients to be able to be treated safely in the community. And so a lot of our work that we do on, on my side of the hospital deals with uh, stabilizing a person's mental health symptoms and helping them to create insight into the relationship between their specific mental health symptoms and their risk for future violence so that they you know, can take uh, the steps that they need to take when they're out in the community to keep themselves safe and to keep other people safe too. Uh, and so that's a really big distinction between you know, people that are sent to prison and people that are sent to hospitals uh, as not guilty by reason of insanity. It's, it's not that they're getting away with murder. And in fact, their road forward is uh, just as challenging, if not more challenging, in, in different ways from people that, uh, that get incarcerated for their crimes. And so that's one of the big myths about the insanity defense is that people are getting away with murder. Uh, another myth about the insanity defense, and I think just severe mental illness in general, is that these symptoms are always associated with violence and that individuals who are found uh, to have a severe mental illness like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder are dangerous just by virtue of having that disorder. Uh, and that's just not the case. You know, in fact, what we know is that, uh, you know, I'm not sure of the exact statistic, but it's less than 10% of individuals that have a severe mental illness will ever engage in any kind of or any form of violence uh, out in the community. And so, in, in fact, a person that has a severe mental illness is actually more at risk for being aggressed on or being a victim of some kind of violence or crime mm -hmm. uh, than they are likely to engage in that type of crime themselves. And so that's why I'm really glad that you guys are are doing a podcast like this and, and addressing uh, some of the myths that are associated with mental illness, because I think it's really important as mental health professionals that we address these things in a meaningful way, uh, just because so much of what we do relies on the public to trust us to do our jobs and uh, for everyone to have kind of a really accurate depiction of what mental illness is. Well, thank you so much. That's definitely our goal with Freudian scripts here. Um, and I think, you know, kind of interestingly, as you touched on Hannibal Lecter, as we know, he um, was found not guilty by a plea of insanity. And we see that he is held 
I guess in what we would call, at least in Silence of the Lambs world, a forensic hospital. Um, <laughs> uh, so I'm just curious, Dr. Adam, about your thoughts of the facility that he's being held, and then kind of more along the lines of correcting those myths, what would we actually expect to see, or um, what would we actually expect from a forensic hospital? Yeah, we really hope you don't actually work in a dungeon, Dr. Adam. Yeah. <laughs> so my office can certainly feel like a dungeon sometimes. Uh, it's pretty small. It doesn't have any windows. And <laughs> when I'm on my 10th hour of working there, it uh, it certainly feels like really bad conditions. But um, no, they, they actually take very good care of me there. Um, but no, when you step outside of the office, uh, conditions are, are very, very different than what you see in Silence of the Lambs world. Whereas in the film, you see patients separated, kind of like in these isolation rooms with bars and, and glass. Uh, that's not what we see uh, at Patton State for sure and at other forensic hospitals that I've been in. So different. And I think one of the only clues that it might have been a mental institution or psychiatric facility was that it seemed like the leader was Dr. Chilton, who was a psychiatrist. So I think that was definitely part of the confusion there. But please do uh, continue with kind of like those differences and what we'd expect to see. And I'm assuming so far from what you said that it is not a dark dungeon with like multiple cells and Hannibal Lecter behind like glass so that he can't bite people. Yeah, exactly. One of the, you know, only clues I had that we were even in a mental institution here was that uh, the Netflix description told me so. That's <laughs> kind of how different things are in real life uh, from this movie. Uh, I, I really felt at times like they were in a really old, like, dra like dreary prison um, versus a, a mental institution. Uh, but yeah, most of the time what you see at, at a forensic hospital, um, patients will have common areas where they can congregate together. And, and they often do. They play cards. They uh, watch TV. They uh, do artwork, which is, you know, then displayed on the walls there. Uh, it's not, you know, super glamorous conditions. You know, a lot of the places that I've worked, um, you know, these hospitals were built in the, the early 1900s. And so, you know, just the, the structures themselves are quite old. But, you know, the we're not seeing like dreary, drippy dungeon-like conditions. There's actually, you know, the walls are painted really nicely. And, you know, the the things that the patients do in terms of like their artwork and um, like treatment progress. If someone's done something great, there's there's signs on the walls that's congratulating them. And uh, when it's time for a patient to go home, all the other patients uh, really celebrate that. Uh, and I think that's a, a really nice thing. Um, the patients all seem to get along really well for the most part, too. Uh, you know, bad days do happen for some patients, and some patients are not as far along in their recovery as others. And, um, you know, certainly that kind of changes the climate of the unit sometimes. Uh, but more than patients being afraid of, of patients who aren't doing well, uh, the ones who are pretty stable and doing well just want to help out these other patients who aren't doing so well. Uh, and that was really surprising for me. I when I went into my first state hospital, I wasn't really sure what to expect, you know, partly because of how these places are portrayed, uh, not just in movies and not just in popular media, but also just in kind of news stories. Um, but, you know, so far, this, this hasn't been my experience whatsoever. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And it's also good for us to hear that you also feel safe going to work. I think 
one of the first spots in the movie where we're introduced to kind of the conditions in which Hannibal Lecter is currently living is when Clarice shows up. Um, and I think it might be interesting to just give a quick listen to the long list of rules that they kind of give her and make sure that she's oriented to in order to go and speak to Hannibal. Do not touch the glass. Do not approach the glass. You pass in nothing but soft paper. No pencils or pens. No staples or paper clips in his paper. Use the sliding food carrier. No exceptions. If he attempts to pass you anything, do not accept it. Do you understand me? Yes, I understand, sir. So with this clip, we hear, you know, they're giving Clarice this long list of things that she has to do to stay safe. Don't lean on the glass. Don't do this. Don't do that. They let her in between multiple locked gates and these really heavy iron looking doors um, and let them know that they'll be watching. But I thought that that clip was an interesting contrast to your experiences, Dr. Adam. It's like they're trying to breed this environment of you are always in danger, constant vigilance, which don't get me wrong. I'm sure there is vigilance and safety measures. Um, so maybe speaking a little bit to more of those realistic safety measures and precautions that you would take in um, the setting that you work. Yeah. In fact, I, I feel really safe when I go to work. Uh, there are certainly precautions put in place to keep everyone safe. You know, we have uh, distress monitors that we wear around on necks just in case we need to get someone to come help us. Uh, in my two going on three years at Patton, I've never had to use it. Um, I've never had to respond to anyone else using it. Um, but it is nice to have that that there, um, just to know that we're safe. Um, but no, I, I've never been in a situation where I've felt that a patient was imminently going to become aggressive, um, although we certainly are trained in how to to handle that. So as part of our orientation, we do go through training that helps us uh, to manage patient aggression, and to recognize when situations are escalating so that we can de-escalate that situation. Basically, we're trained in kind of understanding the kind of the ebbs and flows of mental illness. Uh, So for severe mental illness, patients just have bad days sometimes. And so we're educated on what to look out for um, when a patient might be becoming agitated, uh, when a patient might be experiencing paranoia that increases the likelihood that they'll you know, feel like they're in danger and need to take steps to protect themselves. Um, And at that point, we would just discontinue any kind of meeting that we're having with them and report to um, the nursing staff on the unit or the psychiatric technicians who are are trained also in the art of de-escalation of of those situations. And so we always want to do what's going to keep our patients the most safe. And there's, you know, never a, a time where you know, I felt that, you know, I was not safe uh, in an interaction with a patient. But we do have common sense measures that we put in place just in terms of, you know, what we look for, even down to how we position ourselves in rooms to make it easy for us if, if we need to uh, get out of a situation quickly that there isn't a patient between us and the door, for example. Um, you know, we're always just trying to be mindful of of those little things. And after a while, it it sort of becomes common sense. And you just do these things as part of your everyday job, uh, rather than having to kind of explicitly think about it. Yeah, we really appreciate you sharing all that. I think it's so important because forensic psychology in general is very, there's a lot of different myths that go along with that that are perpetuated in the media. And specifically, I think we see this over and over again, you know, these very high restriction, really scary, you know, places that people work and anything bad could happen. And in the case of Hannibal, he does get his get a hold of a pen and use that to escape and in this really horrific way. Um, so I think that might be a good transition to start talking about Hannibal's character. And specifically, we're really excited to have you on Dr. Adam because psychopathy 
psychopathy is one of your areas of expertise. Um, and we've talked about psychopathy a few times on the podcast, but are really excited to really dive deeper into it with you today. And excitingly, we're going to play a diagnosis bingo today with Dr. Adam to decide whether or not Hannibal is a psychopath. So I think we all have our own ideas, but let's find out from an expert um, if he has the characteristics. So Dr. Adam, what really is a psychopath? What is psychopathy? And how would we go about diagnosing someone with it? Yeah, so psychopathy, first and foremost, is a personality disorder. And so what we mean by that, these are traits that are consistent in an individual across time and across settings. So they're going to be this way uh, no matter who they're around, no matter where they are. It's just characteristic of them. Uh, psychopathy in general, though, is a personality disorder that is characterized by deficits in interpersonal, uh, emotional facets of, of their life. Uh, there's also a lifestyle component to psychopathy and then um, an antisocial behavioral component to psychopathy. And so what might be really useful, uh, I can break down the traits that are associated with each of those facets and, and try to give as many examples of what we see from Hannibal in the movie to support that. Uh, so first, uh, psychopathy is characterized by interpersonal deficits. And so what's really characteristic of the interpersonal style of an individual with psychopathy, uh, they're going to present as glib or superficially charming. So you definitely see some of the glibness with Dr. Lecter. You know, he's very verbally skilled. He's kind of always got a, a retort or a response for um, what people are saying. He's very well spoken. Oh, Agent Starling, you think you can dissect me with this blunt little tool? No, I'm I, I thought that your knowledge... You're so ambitious, aren't you? Do you know what you look like to me with your good bag and your cheap shoes? You look like a rube. Uh, and that's characteristic of a lot of individuals' psychopathy. They're going to be very socially capable. Um, it's going to help them get a lot of their advantages uh, over others. <laughs> uh, and I don't know what you guys' perspective was, but I didn't see Hannibal as particularly charming or, or trying to kind of get one over in, in a like charming way on anyone. His seemed to be more of this verbally facile glibness. I was actually, you know, at first I thought the same, but as I was listening to you kind of give that summary, Dr. Adam, I was actually thinking about in the end, Clarice kind of has this comment about like she's really comfortable and she feels like she knows Dr. Lecter isn't going to be coming after her, right? He won't come after me. Oh, really? He won't. I can't explain it. He, he, he would consider that rude. And so I think in that way, there was like a superficial bond and that she did develop some kind of, I think, superficial level of comfort with him because I think if given the chance, he probably would harm her or, you know, he has no reason to protect her or treat her well. Um, and I do think he was maybe using her, um, you know, he was helping her to catch Buffalo Bill, as we know, but I kind of always wondered, like, well, what was his aim? Like, why is he helping? Maybe it's for his own, like, ego to kind of seem helpful or smart, intelligent, but also he was probably trying to see, like, what he could get from Clarice, right? Like, was that a transfer? Was that getting away from Dr. Chilton? So I think I, d I also didn't perceive him as very charming, but I think he did have some um, end goals that were, like, related to that superficial relationship with Clarice. Uh, you hit the nail on the head there, Dr. Sam. Another 
you know, really prominent interpersonal component for individuals with psychopathy is that conning, that manipulative type of behavior. You know, at, uh, at their, their best, individuals with psychopathy are viewing interactions with other people as kind of that quid pro quo that Hannibal refers to pretty often throughout the movie. If I help you, Clarice, it will be terms with us too. Quid pro quo, I tell you things, you tell me things. Not about this case, though. So interpersonal relationships are useful insofar as they help people to achieve their goals. And so the interactions between others are, aren't to develop a, a real deep relationship. It's more like, what can you do for me? And how can you be useful uh, to me? You know, so at, you know, at worst, that's the way that they view interpersonal relationships. But most Mm-hmm. advantageously for the psychopath, uh, psychopathic individual, I think, you know, they're just going to try to take advantage of, of whoever they can. Um, they view individuals as kind of pawns in their, their schemes. And so they'll do what they have to, but um, what they're actually looking to do is to uh, take as much advantage of others as they can to, to reach their goals. And so that's really the sense that I got from watching the interactions between Hannibal and Clarice. You know, early on, you know, Hannibal really made it clear what he was looking for uh, from Clarice. So he only offered his help insofar as it would get him to this, you know, other institution where he could have a window and a tree to look at. You know, he mentions that many times. Uh, and so right from the get-go, too, you notice that Hannibal really takes control of the situation, takes control of the conversation, and steers it where he wants it to go. Uh, and that's really a way uh, – I found that to be really interesting because, you know, the power dynamic between Clarice and Hannibal is such that, you know, she is a, an FBI agent and he is a, an individual in custody. And so you would expect for – Uh, Clarice to be the one that's kind of guiding that conversation but Hannibal made it clear very early on that that wasn't going to be the case and and that's really what you'll find in real life when interacting with people with psychopathic traits is you know they they like to steer where the conversation goes because that helps them to feel in control and, and to really control the outcomes of those things. I'm kind of wondering, Dr. Adam, what your take is on this whole quid pro quo that he does with Clarice about wanting to get information. It almost seems like it's this power dynamic where he's wanting to get knowledge about her. But I'm wondering if if that feels like it fits in with that psychopathy or kind of where you see that fit. Yeah, I do think that is consistent with uh, what we know about psychopathic traits. Uh, I do think there's a myth about psychopathy that uh, says that individuals with psychopathy are necessarily like very intelligent um, just very sophisticated individuals. Uh, but I think the research also suggests that there's actually a negative relationship between psychopathy and intelligence. Uh, but what we see with the interpersonal component here, uh, in order to be able to manipulate someone, right, you have to be in control of the conversation. You also have to have a sense of what the other person is, is seeking to get um, from the conversation. And just like you pointed out, Dr. Fran, um, Hannibal is quite aware of what Clarice is wanting to do. Uh, he's uh, she's wanting to get this testing done, and um, that's really not on Hannibal's agenda. And so because it isn't, then it most likely isn't going to happen. Mm-hmm. And Hannibal wants that to be known right away. Um, he wants to really reflect that social dominance in the conversation from the get-go. Uh, and I think at one point he he tries to level the playing field really early by you know looking at Clarice's credentials, uh, noticing that her credential expires in uh, 
very shortly, and then inferring from that that she must not be an actual FBI agent, but rather a trainee. May I see your credentials? Certainly. That expires in one week. You're not real FBI, are you? And so he brings that up just to, you know, really level out that power dynamic there. Uh, and there's sort of a, an indignance that comes with, with the statement that he makes, too. Almost like, I can't believe that um, they sent a trainee to talk to me. Jack Crawford sent a trainee to me. Yes, I'm a student. Uh, and that really goes along with this other component of psychopathy. Mm-hmm. So this grandiose sense of self-worth, which is, is really akin to like narcissism, right? So there's a sense of entitlement that comes uh, along with psychopathy. And you see that illustrated with Hannibal really well. Um, There's a lot of different times where he asserts how special he is. Um, You know, in the iconic line from the movie, A census taker once tried to test me. I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. He's saying that in the context of a conversation where he's asserting that he's just too sophisticated for these tests. And so, like I was saying, there might not be a relationship in the literature between intelligence and psychopathy, but I do think there's a relationship, uh, and the traits would bear out that uh, these people do think that they are superior to their peers and that they have abilities that are beyond what other people are capable of. Uh, And that includes people that are technically in positions uh, of power, over them. And so I think, you know, this interaction between Clarice and Hannibal really illustrates that component of of psychopathy well also. So another thing that I noticed that I thought was really interesting uh is how condescending Hannibal is toward Clarice. Um you know, he and I think that's associated with this grandiose sense of self-worth. Uh, that we've been talking about. So he he makes a couple of comments where, you know, when Clarice wants him to do this test, he's like, no, 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 we're not, we're not <laughs> going there. We're not doing that. Oh, no, 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 no. You were doing fine. You had been courteous and receptive to courtesy. You had established trust with the embarrassing truth about Migs. And now this ham-handed segue into your questionnaire... It won't do. Uh, but then he compliments her on what she was doing well. He's like, oh, you were following protocol exactly. You were establishing rapport. You were building trust and all of that. And then you blew it, right? <laughs> so he, he builds her up just to, to kind of take her down there. Um, and that is, uh, that's another way of kind of leveling that, that playing field and the power dynamic uh, between them. So he's asserting himself as, as the dominant one here, um, both because of his expertise as a psychiatrist uh, and also just kind of his... Uh, his superior intellect. I think he's he is trying to communicate that message. Like, I see what you're doing. We both know what the protocol here is. So let's just cut that out and get down to uh, get down to the more interesting stuff. You know, what's interesting with Hannibal, and I think we haven't touched on this yet. Hannibal is a psychiatrist, right, by training. So I think, you know, if he is more well-versed with those social skills and this, like, self-importance, some of that can even be more inflated by the fact that he is seemingly intelligent and a trained doctor and professional and a trained professional in a field of understanding um, the behavior of others, right? So kind of even more lending to this idea that he's the only one that can help them catch Buffalo Bill and he has all of this important knowledge and he's just so important and they 
And he deserves to be treated as such in order to help Clarice. <laughs> when in actuality, the only reason he knows who Buffalo Bill is is because of happenstance, right? Like he happens to have a patient that was Buffalo Bill's partner, and that's how he knows. It's not it's like true. he actually has come up with the, this amazing profile that leads them to him or anything that's like that. That's very true. Right. And I don't think it's any coincidence mm -hmm. that we don't find that information out uh, until the very end. I think that's exactly the way that mm -hmm. Hannibal wants things to go. He wants to give this illusion that he has this specialized knowledge um, that no one else is capable of, of coming up with so that he can then use that information uh, to manipulate the situation uh, to his advantage. Uh, absolutely. I, I think the movie does a really nice job of illustrating that there. And I think something you alluded to, Dr. Adam, is also the relationship between psychopathy and antisocial behavior or criminality. And actually, I think that's another place that we oftentimes see a misportrayal in the media. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the reality is that there's pretty considerable debate within the field uh, about whether antisocial behavior is even a necessary component of psychopathy. And so, on, on one side of the debate, you have a, a very well-respected group of scholars who think that, yes, this antisocial behavior component is necessary and it is part of psychopathy. And, and I think those people would conceptualize mm -hmm. psychopathy as kind of like the most severe form of antisocial personality disorder. Uh, on the other side of the debate, though, you have scholars that say, no, antisocial behavior isn't necessary, it's not a component of the disorder, but rather it's just a, a behavioral consequence of having a person that interpersonally likes to take advantage of other people and likes to engage in deceitful and conning and manipulative types of interactions with others. And from an emotional stance, you know, we haven't talked much about this yet, but the core emotional deficits of psychopathy are this lack of empathy and this lack of remorse for what you do. And so people on this side of the debate would say that, you know, if you have a person that lacks empathy and lacks remorse, then they're more likely to engage then uh, in criminal activity when it suits them. But there, I think the important take-home message there is that there's just well-reasoned opinions on both sides of this. Um, even the, the most prominent scholar mm -hmm. uh, who's done a lot for the research on the assessment of psychopathy, Dr. Bob Hare, uh, has published a book called Snakes in Suits. Um, when psycho and talks about when psychopaths go into the workplace. And so that book really details how... Uh, so individuals with psychopathic traits who can avoid criminality uh, and avoid interacting with the legal system and becoming incarcerated, uh, a lot of the traits associated with psychopathy can actually make you really successful in like the business world, uh, in those types of arenas where being a little bit superficially charming and glib can get you on the right side of relationships with the right people who can then help your advancement. You know, if you're not really mm -hmm. concerned about who you kind of screw over along the way, you can really advance yourself quite quickly uh, in a lot of different environments. Uh, you know, I read a study not too long ago uh, where some psychologists looked at all of our U.S. presidents and sort of had these experts rate each of the presidents mm -hmm. on what psychopathic traits they demonstrated. Uh, and there was a, a relationship between success in the presidency and kind of rising to that position uh, and kind of these interpersonal mm -hmm. deficits that we talked about. So being really charming. You know, there's, there's definitely, I don't think I have to sell anyone on charm and uh, even superficially charming and glibness being uh, key to being a politician, you know. Um, 
And so I think you can see how it is possible for people to demonstrate psychopathic traits and to be what we consider to be successful mm-hmm. psychopaths in the sense that they're able to avoid being incarcerated. Uh, and that observation has led some people to think that, you know, to question whether antisocial characteristics are actually necessary to be included in psychopathy. Uh, but I do think illustrations like Dr. Lecter's, for example, really perpetuate this idea that psychopathy is is essentially conflated with heinousness. So if someone does something that's just a really heinous uh, crime, something that it, it just blows your mind that a human being could even be capable of this, well, then they must be a psychopath. Um, but that's that's not really what we know to be true. I think that's a really good point, and especially in the context of thinking about like mental illness, right? Is that it's not a disorder unless it's interfering um, in most cases, and so that's something we see time and time again is this misportrayal of you know, and psychopathy obviously gets blown up in the media and you know really shown to be like you said almost affiliated with heinous crimes and things like that. But when in reality, there for all these diagnoses we talk about, they're on a spectrum, and some of these traits might be adaptive and helpful in some situations, and then in the very extreme case, very, very extreme case that we see with Hannibal, it's very not adaptive and um, actually very harmful. Right. And I think another thing to consider is that these traits do exist on a continuum and they don't exist in a vacuum, right? So this is a combination of traits. And so think, for example, you have a person who is manipulative and is conning and deceitful. uh, And then you pair that with another associated trait of psychopathy, a lack of empathy, a lack of remorse. Uh, couple that with another trait of psychopathy like impulsivity. And I think what you're doing then is creating conditions where these types of violent behaviors or criminal behaviors are more likely to occur. So, you know, it's not, uh, I think it's not enough to ask the question like, are psychopathic individuals violent or are psychopathic traits associated with violence? But I think the more nuanced question that you know, we're trying to ask in the research literature now and kind of trying to understand from a clinical perspective uh, is which psychopathic traits contribute to violence and which type of psychopathic traits contribute to criminal behavior and under what conditions. So you really can't discount situational factors and, and contextual factors in that relationship either. Because as we know, in psychology, it's it's not just the person that's Uh, responsible for these things. It's often the environments that we place them in. And it's often the social context that people find themselves into that contribute to to their behavior. And so, you know, as our understanding of those things continues to develop, I think we'll we'll have an even more nuanced understanding of the relationship between uh, psychopathy and violence and psychopathy and criminality that'll help us to answer this question um, in an even more scientific and empirically valid way. I have a question related to that, Dr. Adam. As you mentioned, we haven't really gotten into the emotional piece or the emotional characteristics. Um, but it reminds me of this scene when Hannibal, uh, after Clarice and Hannibal's first meeting, she's leaving. He really hasn't opened up or talked much to her. Um, but then one of the other individuals that is there in the dungeon with him um, does something to harass Clarice and we do see Hannibal get a little bit emotionally dysregulated. He gets really upset, really emotional um, and then calls Clarice back and then agrees to work with her just because he's so upset by the actions of the other individual. Um, So I think interestingly to your point, we don't really 
see Hannibal having that empathy or concern for Clarice. So kind of what do you make of that scene or that situation and why that upset Hannibal so and why that kind of caused him to then want to work with her? You know, I grappled with this issue almost the whole time I was watching the movie. Like, does (laughs) Hannibal show any kind of genuine empathy towards Clarice? And if so, why would he do that? And so, you know, you definitely have hints of empathy there in that first interaction, that situation where Hannibal, he calls Clarice back. He's yelling for her to come back. It's it's how important it is for her uh, to come back. And he reassures her that he thinks this is despicable behavior, that he would never have wanted this to happen to her. I would not have had that happen to you. This courtesy is unspeakably ugly to me. Then do this test for me. No, but I will make you happy. I'll give you a chance for what you love most. And so, yeah, I think he recognized the value of that relationship to him. And he wanted to make sure that he was able to continue that. Um, And then you see other times throughout the film where it seems like Hannibal actually is demonstrating some liking for and empathy uh, towards Mm -hmm. Clarice. Uh, The scene that is coming to my mind right now is when she comes to speak with him and it's been raining outside. um, And before he even says anything to her, he slides a towel to her so that she can dry her hair off. And so, you know, that's what's so hard about psychopathy is you're not really sure of what the motives are. And kind of like you said, Dr. Sam, my impression after, you know, taking all of that uh, in totality, I, I really think that Hannibal did recognize the value of the relationship between he and Clarice. Uh, and he sort of had a plan from the get-go to get what he wanted out of this. And so he knew that uh, from that perspective, he he needed Clarice. And so he wanted to do what he needed to uh, to maintain that relationship. That's a good point. I think it's also important to know it's a movie, right? So their portrayals of these uh, of mental illness of various syndromes are not going to always be accurate, and they are trying to make it more entertaining. Um, but I do think uh, in this scene with the other prisoner when Hannibal becomes upset, I also was thinking there is that aspect of superiority. He just thinks that he is so much better than the other individuals he's surrounded by, and also just it thinks that the that act is so like vile and beneath him. So I kind of wonder if that played into it too, because later we know that he goes on to basically torture and manipulate that individual into harming themselves. And um, so I, I do see, I had the same thing, like kind of grappling in certain moments, but I think ultimately, at least in my impression of the movie, I do think his main motivations are that manipulation and kind of what does he get out of things. Yeah, I think another piece, Dr. Adam, that you had alluded to before is um, kind of, again, these like myths about psychopathy and how they're related. And there's a really interesting clip, actually, where Dr. Chilton, the head of the state hospital, is describing Hannibal that we wanted to play and kind of get your thoughts on. Oh, he's a monster. Pure psychopath. So rare to capture one alive. From a research point of view, Lecter is our most prized asset. We've tried to study him, of course, but he's much too sophisticated for the standard tests. Oh my, does he hate us? So what really stands out to me about that clip is just how dehumanizing a lot of the language that Dr. Chilton uses is. And, you know, they're almost referring to Hannibal as though he's, he's not a human, that he's... Uh, so, for example, one of the first things that you hear about him is that he's this monster, this pure psychopath, you know, and... They go on to describe him as um, a, a prized research asset. And, you know, then upon seeing Hannibal for the very first time, one of the, the first things we see is 
you know, this suggestion that he might have some extra sensory capabilities with uh, his ability to smell. He comments on uh, Clarissa's uh, hand lotion, I believe. You use Evian skin cream. And sometimes you wear lead at all. And so, but you know, there today. is this kind of other type language that people type, uh, tend to use when they're talking about individuals uh, with psychopathic traits that really kind of it just dehumanizes them is the word that uh, immediately comes to my mind. Uh, we treat them as though they're, they're not human beings like us. Uh, and I think the professional literature and professional you know, discussions on psychopathy aren't exactly innocent of this either. You know, I was alluding earlier to the, the book Snakes in Suits, right? So um, just kind of giving this impression that psychopathic individuals are, are snakes. They're, they're slippery, they're, they're slithery, and um, more creature-like. Uh, and so even the, the literature on adolescent yeah. psychopathy, so callous and unemotional traits in youth, uh, often refer to, to these children as fledgling psychopaths. Mm-hmm. And so what, I, what I've always found ironic about this is that we're, we're talking about a disorder that's characterized by callousness and a lack of empathy. Uh, and then we're, we're treating these individuals in a very callous and unempathic way, just in, in how we separate them from, from other people by the words that we use. And so, you know, I think a lot of that is perpetuated by the media uh, and, you know, portrayals like what Dr. Chilton is doing here and just how heinous Hannibal actually is uh, in the movie. But I think our professional language isn't always uh, the best when describing this, too. And, and so, I'm, you know, I think a lot of people these days are trying to be more person-centered and person-first in their language. So they'll say individuals with psychopathic traits and, and things like that. And I think that's a nice move towards uh, removing some of the stigma that's associated with this diagnosis that actually has some really significant uh, consequences in society. So I was thinking, kind of for example, if... Uh, in jury decision-making research, we know that if someone is labeled as a psychopath, um, or if the word psychopathy is used in a report, then or in testimony, juries are much more likely to convict that individual and to True. perceive them as dangerous, to think that they're morally and legally responsible for the behavior. Yeah. Uh, and in death penalty cases, they're much more likely to recommend the death penalty. And so, you know, that's one reason it's it's really good to be mindful. Of, of stigma. It's because these are not inconsequential choices that we're making. They're not inconsequential perceptions that we're forming. And so that that's my main impression just um, from that clip is, you know, from the get-go, we see Hannibal as this dangerous individual because we're told to. And then our perceptions of him necessarily follow from that. That definitely seems to be the message of Silence of the Lambs. And obviously Hannibal's character is so hyperbolic that I probably would say he is maybe not as treatable or doesn't have as positive of a a prognosis as we would hope, right? But um, I think that's kind of the point of this movie. So on that note, this might be a good time to ask, does Hannibal Lecter seem to meet the criteria for psychopathy, Dr. Adam? So before I answer that question, I want to point out how difficult of a question it is to answer just because... um, Dr. Lecter is only on the screen for 16 minutes of this 122-minute oh, wow. <laughs> movie. And so we don't have a lot of information about him, really. Did you sit down and count that, Dr. Adam? <laughs> no, no. Uh, I have Google to thank for that uh, statistic there. But I do think it's amazing that 
he does spend so little time on screen. But I think if you ask just the average person, they would tell you that this movie is completely about Hannibal Lecter and completely about that character. And I think that speaks to, one, how amazing Hopkins is at, at portraying the character, but two, just really how salient um, the behaviors and, and psychopathy and how kind of inherently interesting uh, this construct is to a lot of people. And so uh, that's exactly what I thought. I, I was shocked that he wasn't on screen more than he was. I thought this movie was almost entirely about him, but come to find out there's this entire other plot that involves another serial killer. So, <laughs> um, And so in clinical practice, you would definitely want to get more information about Dr. Lecter, you know, especially when you're scoring uh, the psychopathy checklist revised, which is the main way that we assess for psychopathy in a clinical context, um, you would want to have information from multiple sources uh, because the nature of psychopathy is that these people do tend to be deceitful and they do tend to engage in some degree of impression management. And so you'll want to look at file information and legal histories and uh, things like that in order to make that decision and to score uh, this rating scale. It does seem that he hits most of our bingo check marks, would you say, <laughs> from the 16 minutes that we do see? Yeah, I definitely think when you look at the interpersonal and emotional characteristics of psychopathy, you have enough information to really say that he hits on a lot of these. So I think the conning and manipulative behavior is what stands out most and is most salient for me. Uh, he also engages in a good bit of deceitful type of behavior. It doesn't seem like he's outright lying at times, but I'm thinking about the scene where he's he's dressed in um, the police officer's uniform and has the police officer's face over his. Like, that's a very deceitful um, <laughs> behavior. Um, you know, he does also present with the glibness. So I think as far as the these facet one interpersonal traits of psychopathy, he's got that for sure. Uh, from the emotional perspective, um, uh, the emotional deficits like the lack of empathy, the lack of remorse, uh, kind of the shallow emotional experience, I think he demonstrates evidence of all of that uh, as well, uh, especially if we conceptualize um, the behaviors like with Clarice and the interactions with Clarice as being reflective of kind of shallow empathy as opposed to like really deep caring for her uh, for manipulative purposes. Um, I think that kind of lends credence to that as well. Uh, it's also, yeah, I, I don't think Hopkins blinks the entire movie. So he's not showing any kind of really emotional um, response. He's very cold in that way. Like even when he gets angry, it's, it's not this very like animated anger. It's just kind of loud. Do you know, Dr. Adam, which aspects were missing or, you know, in terms of kind of not meeting that threshold? Um, where you, where you start to, maybe need more information or not um, find support for the traits as much as when you kind of look at the lifestyle components of psychopathy. So uh, failure to fulfill like financial obligations, um, irresponsibility, you know, like we were saying, Dr. Lecter is quite successful. Mm -hmm. And so um, you would definitely want kind of more information about his functioning there. Okay. Uh, even with the antisocial behavior components. Um, some of the major components listed on there are like revocation of condition release, um, early behavioral problems, like juvenile conduct problems, things like that. Um, we just don't really know what Hannibal's life uh, was like when he was younger, although you might infer that these uh, characteristics, because this is a personality disorder, uh, really go far back. Um, 
Also, I think one that we can sort of rule out with some some confidence, uh, for an individual with psychopathic traits, you expect what we call criminal versatility. And so in order to obtain a score of a 2, which is the highest rating score that you can get for each item on the PCLR, uh, an individual would need to engage in at least six types of criminal wow. activity, mm-hmm. six or more. Okay. And to my knowledge, all that we see Dr. Lecter engage in is is murder. Um, and I, I guess assault as well with the uh, the nurse who he harmed uh, in the film. And um, yeah, but for an individual with psychopathy, you'd want to see kind of a more varied criminal history. So I think you could definitely say uh, that Dr. Lecter presents with antisocial behavior. I think that's the, the point of the movie. Um, and so I know people that have looked into this issue much more deeply than me that have looked at kind of the books that have been written about Dr. Lecter, uh, also all of the movies um, for Hannibal uh, that portray his character. And I think there's a general consensus that if he's if he doesn't meet the definition or the, the criteria for psychopathy, he's pretty darn close. Uh, and that's my impression, too. I think that's so um, fascinating and interesting. And Dr. Fran and I often uh, have joked about just being spoiled by the fact that we can't get a full diagnostic interview with history from childhood in these movies and shows. So we will never really know the true diagnoses. But I think in terms of, you know, looking at the fictional character, if we were to assume he had a history of these things kind of based on the presentation we're seeing and those factors you're describing, um, he may um, meet the criteria for having those psychopathic traits. And I think the other thing we don't see portrayed in the movie is treatment, right? So we just see that he's hospitalized. We don't see anything about if they're trying to rehabilitate him or, you know, do anything to, you know, amend any harm that could be caused by these psychopathic traits. So I were wondering maybe briefly to wrap things up today, Dr. Adam, if you could tell us, like, what is the treatment for psychopathy? Yeah, the only thing we see is them actually torturing him or using punishment and consequence, which, correct me if I'm wrong, Dr. Adam, but I think we know actually isn't very effective (laughs) in this population. (laughs) No, in fact, I would assume for someone with the grandiose sense of self-worth that uh, Hannibal has, he would be quite um, quite angry at yeah. the type of treatment um, that he gets there and then more likely to engage in some problematic behaviors because of that. Uh, it's true that the early literature on psychopathy isn't very encouraging in terms of treatment outcomes. Um, a lot of the studies that looked at just regular psycho- uh, psychotherapy for individuals with psychopathy didn't come up with uh, any significant findings. And I think sort of the issue there is that when you think about what makes therapy effective, a lot of the time it is the relationship between the clinician and the patient. And so for a person that presents with these interpersonal and affective deficits, you know, it's no, it's no surprise that it's going to be really hard to develop a good therapeutic alliance um, through which to work there. But I think more encouragingly, over time, what we found is that different approaches that don't necessarily rely on that therapeutic alliance as much relative to other forms of therapy uh, are actually producing some significant behavioral changes and, and resulting in decreased rule violations. So motivational interviewing uh, is one that comes to mind. Uh, so motivational interviewing is um, more focusing on the values of the, the patient and kind to help them see, trying to help them see how what behaviors they're engaging in are helping or hurting their pursuits of their goals. And so, you know, when you think about kind of the normal presentation of psychopathy, I think it makes a lot of sense that an approach like this uh, 
could be something that's potentially helpful. And I think some of the research that's coming out now bears that out in terms of treatment mm. outcomes. Uh, when I was at the University of Alabama, I worked on some studies where we were um, working with youth with psychopathic traits from a positive psychology perspective. And so trying to take advantage of the strengths that the individual has uh, to help them foster more productive, uh, satisfying relationships with family members and friends, you know, with the idea being that, you know, if you increase that social connectedness and you increase those interpersonal skills, uh, you can kind of turn these antisocial behaviors into more pro-social behaviors. Uh, and I think that's, I think that's a really promising avenue um, for treatment as well. And I, I know that that research group is going to continue to do to do that work, and I'm really anxiously awaiting to see how that um, how that comes out. Now, I can tell you at Patton right now, uh, one of the psychologists that I'm working with has a, a really interesting perspective on what you can do for psychopathy and antisocial individuals uh, that takes advantage of that social skill and that social potency that a lot of these individuals present with. Uh, so we routinely run treatment groups um, on our unit that have... Mm-hmm. Uh, individuals with psychopathic traits in there, uh, but also individuals with severe mental illness, so schizophrenia, which is characterized by significant deficits in social behavior. And so what we'll try to do there is take our patients who are a little more socially skilled and try to get them to to teach those skills to patients that don't have them. And so kind of in this this paradoxical way, we're kind of prescribing the symptom, right? So we're saying, yeah, you've got this uh, real social skill, why don't you use that to help other someone else? And so again, like what you're doing there is taking that antisocial behavior uh, and using it for a pro-social purpose. And the idea is you, you want that to be reinforcing. You want them to see these other patients learn those skills and get better uh, and then want to do that kind of on their own. So anecdotally, I've seen it work uh, to some degree. Uh, I think we'll, <laughs> we'll continue to, to try to do that. I don't know if we'll study in any kind of... Um, research style capacity. That is great to hear. And I think I was most familiar with the strengths-based approach for the younger um, population. Um, But the description of motivational interviewing and kind of that approach and that perspective makes a lot of sense um, because you're working with individual kind of towards their goals and kind of meeting them where they're at to then meet their goals. And um, as we talked about, even with Hannibal, everyone has goals that they're working towards. So kind of hoping to steer people towards more positive and productive goals. <laughs> like you said, it's a brand, it's a growing field. And so hopefully you're going to see even more of kind of these different techniques and then, then be studied and then put out in research. It sounds like your job is, um, you have job security. There's lots of research for you to do <laughs> on this population and coming up with some new and unique ways of intervening with them. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Adam, for being on today. We've really enjoyed um, talking through all these different pieces, and we would love if you would join us for our PH Don'ts. I would love to. This is not a safe place. Sorry, are you, you going like, to keep touching me like that? That guy is a total loon. But I cannot talk about my clients. I cannot talk about my clients. Oh, that's it. Great, great job. Don't Thank you. haunt and psychologically torture your patients by playing evangelical videos on a loop. Don't keep your patients in dungeon prison-like cells. Don't discuss intimate details about your life with a serial killer.
don't allow a serial killer psychiatrist to psychoanalyze you. And last but certainly not least, do not leave sharp objects such as a pen in the same cell as a violent <laughs> cannibalistic individual. <laughs> All right. So now that we've really talked about a lot of things related to Silence of the Lambs and Hannibal Lecter, psychopathy, it's been a great session thus far. So Dr. Adam, overall, you know, kind of excitingly, your first time watching Silence of the Lambs, what was your overall impression of the movie? Like, what did you think of the movie? So I think the chemistry that you get on camera between Anthony Hopkins and Jodie Foster is is just incredible. And I think what's good about that is it allowed them to really portray those interpersonal deficits and those interpersonal interactions and dynamics of psychopathy uh, really well. Um, I think from a, from that standpoint, that's kind of what they do best um, from a psychological perspective in the movie is, inter, uh, is show those really interpersonal um, components of psychopathy well. Uh, I was really interested in the movie too. I thought the the plot was, was pretty fascinating, how they're using... Um, one serial killer to help capture (laughs) another. Um, So, you know, just from like a a movie fan perspective, I appreciated, I appreciated that aspect of things. Definitely. And you, Dr. Fran? I would agree. I mean, I think especially for when it came out, it was one of, you know, I think kind of the first big portrayals of like, you know, profiling. And so it definitely makes sense why at the time it was so popular. I will say it's probably not my favorite psychological thriller that portrays like serial killers or psychopathy. I think just since then we've come such a long way and finding other new and unique ways of portraying those things that maybe are slightly more accurate, um, but still equally as thrilling and interesting and entertaining. So I definitely like the movie. I would recommend it and I would watch it, but definitely not my favorite psychological thriller, I would say. And you, Dr. Sam? I think I'm kind of a blend between the two of you, actually. And as we discussed in the beginning, you know, this film won so many awards, so many accolades. It still is constantly referenced and talked about. I think a lot of that has to do with Dr. Adam. You know, you mentioned just the acting. So both of them won awards for their portrayals of these characters. Um, Clarice and Hannibal, great characters. Creepy, creepy Dr. Lecter. He's still one of the most notorious film villains out there um i think with good reason i found the movie to be enjoyable i think it's an older movie you know 1991 so for the time they were trying to do things related to gender with jodie foster and being in the fbi um, and those pieces came through and there's also the problematic pieces related to their portrayal and the stigmatization of the lgbtq plus community that we've discussed um but i agree i think it's overall enjoyable definitely a good psychological thriller in the regards of like the relationship between clarice and hannibal Um, and I will say not as scary as I remembered it being though, you know, I think that always happens. You watch a scary movie and you go back and especially when you're maybe older and hopefully wiser and it's just not as scary. And I think just with the effects and the ways movies have like progressed, it, it's just older movies don't seem as scary anymore. (laughs) I think definitely. And so we also want to wrap up by doing our DSM-5, Diagnosing Shows and Movies. So we use this rating system to assess the accuracy of therapy or mental health portrayals in the shows and TV shows um, and movies that are on our couch. So with five being the most accurate, minor deviations from what we should see versus one being outrageous, not even close <laughs> to an accurate portrayal. So who wants to start us off with their rating? And I think for this movie, we're really going to be tackling, as Dr. Adam has done such a nice job laying out, really the portrayal of the psychopathy in Hannibal Lecter's character. 
Should we start with our guest, Dr. Adam? Of course. Uh, so I think this movie, for me, falls right in the middle. So I'm going to give it a three. Uh, I think, as, I've, as we've been saying, I think the interpersonal and affective components of psychopathy are portrayed very well in the movie. Uh, it's just sort of the overdoing it with the antisocial behavior and kind of conflating uh, psychopathy with heinousness and, and dangerousness for me that I think um, brings it really back down to the middle. But uh, for all the things that they do kind of hyperbolically in the movie, I think there's also some things that they do pretty accurately. And so I think a fair assessment kind of puts my rating right there in the middle uh, for that reason. I might be a little harsher. I might give it a two, actually. I think if I'm also taking into account the portrayal of the state hospital itself and just like how, you know, far that is and how the people are treated in the hospital and just how much of a departure that is from reality, like we've heard Dr. Adam describe today. So I'm going to take off an extra point um, in addition to what you said, Dr. Adam, for the portrayal of like the forensic setting. I was just thinking, I'm usually the harshest raider. I think I also colored Dr. Adams' um, perception, though, because I had kind of started with really just thinking about the psychopathy aspect. And so, you know, I think Dr. Fran kind of added in that extra layer. I'm actually really torn now, like, because... (laughs) And I know we can't do halves, and Dr. Fran also always criticizes me about wanting to do halves and extra points. I know I got to keep it really strict. I think I'm going to go... No halves. That's cheating. I know. (laughs) Jeez. Mm. Okay. I think I'll have to... I was going to say a three with Dr. Adam, but after you mentioned just the facility, I'm thinking, yeah, I should probably be a little harsh with that piece. But I do think... Um, you know, I really agree with Dr. Adams' points about the way they portrayed the interpersonal and emotional pieces of psychopathy. Anthony Hopkins did a great job with that. Um, and I, I also agree, though, that, of course, because it's a movie, they made it, you know, they exaggerated it and made him this cannibalistic murder machine in a dungeon and all of those aspects. I think also... The main reason I want to ding it, actually, is Dr. Chilton. So the only mental health provider that really actually is shown in the movie is a pretty horrible character. So I will go with a two overall related to that. You know, I find all these reasons to be pretty compelling. Uh, You've persuaded me. I'm also (laughs) going to go with a two. Uh, As somebody that works in a a forensic facility, I should certainly um, ding the movie for how they portray that. Um, You guys have persuaded me towards a two here. The more we talk about the movie, the lower our ratings will get. Yes. I think we all kind of agree that maybe like Anthony Hopkins' portrayal of psychopathy was pretty decent, right? Like more in the middle. But the other aspects in terms of the facility and maybe Dr. Chilton are what bring it down. Yeah, of course. And and I haven't spoken highly enough of my coworkers on this podcast yet, but I, I do not know yeah. any Dr. Chilton-like characters uh, where I work. Uh, all these people are very concerned with uh, good patient outcomes and actually don't use all this disparaging language to to describe the people that we're tasked with helping. So I I feel very fortunate for that. And I I think a lot of the people that I work with are also aware of the stigma that surrounds mental illness and and the things that perpetuate that. So again, I I just want to tell you guys how much I enjoy what you're doing uh, to kind of challenge that stigma and to give me the opportunity to to come on here and um, discuss some of the misperceptions of of forensic psychology and and psychopathy also. (laughs) Which is often the problem, which is why we're here. (laughs) All right. Well, session is over for Sounds of the Lambs today. Thank you so much, Dr. Adam, for joining us. We've really loved having you on. I really enjoyed it too. And I'll come back when I can stay longer. uh, But for now, I'm having a friend for dinner, so I have to go. (laughs) 
<laughs> That's perfect. We'd love to have you back to further discuss some of these themes. So everyone, be on the lookout for additional spooky sessions coming out this month. We may even surprise you with more experts as we cover creepy and scary stories for October. Don't forget to check out our website, freudianscripts.com, for resources and a glossary of new terms. Please let us know your thoughts on the movie. We'd also love to hear what questions you have about psychology, including forensic psychology, and what movies or TV shows you want us to put on our couch and break down next. And don't forget to follow us on social media. We're always putting cool stuff out there, such as votes and questions. As you know, we're covering Silence of the Lambs uh, this week because it was picked in a poll from our listeners. So please find and follow us and as always subscribe rate and review time's up see you next session we'd like to thank our producer brandon creative director eric and webmaster don